Welcome to everybody tuning into this podcast. I'm your host Asha Salman. I'm a graduate student at the University of Toronto's Department for the Study of Religion. The Reading Muslims project at the Institute of Islamic Studies is a Connaught Global Challenge recipient. Its mandate is to interrogate the place of textuality within Islamic studies. One of its areas of focus or hubs as they are called within the project is to think about Muslims as readers. To this end today we have Dr. Ali Usman Qasmi who we are very honored to have with us. Uh, Dr. Qasmi is an associate professor of history at the Mushtaq Ahmed Gurmani School of Humanities and Social Sciences, which is part of the Lahore University of Management Sciences, or LUMS for short. He received his PhD from the South Asia Institute of Heidelberg University and joined LUMS in 2012. He is the author of Questioning the Authority of the Past, the Ahl al-Quran Movements in the Punjab. His second monograph, The Ahmadis and the Politics of Religious Exclusion in Pakistan, was the recipient of Karachi Literature Festival Peace Prize in 2015. Dr. Qasmi has co-edited several edited volumes as well, which include Revisioning Iqbal as a Poet and Muslim Political Thinker, The Shia in Modern South Asia, and Muslims Against the Muslim League, Critiques of the Ideas of Pakistan. Welcome, Dr. Qasmi, to our podcast. We are very excited to have you. Um, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for, for having me. It's, it's really exciting and I'm very happy to be part of this conversation. Thank you. Uh, so just to start us off, um, there's a slightly funny, slightly disturbing conversation going on on Pakistani Twitter today in which um, there is there is a piece of news circulating in which the Punjab uh, Education Board reviewed this textbook um, and it was a science textbook and they saw this picture of Isaac Newton and they thought, oh, this is a woman because, because of the wig or the hair and because they thought it was a woman they said oh this this lady who was actually Isaac Newton should be wearing a dupatta or like should be covering her head um, so there is very clearly like a sense of a very clear imagining of who the ideal Muslim is and is, it is often projected onto innocent figures like Isaac Newton and in broader terms reading Muslims is designed to examine the politics of text and textuality and like in ordinary usage terms like text and reading and reader they seem like pretty straightforward terms but are they really in and in light of the research that you have conducted on the legibility of Ahmadi Muslims in the Pakistani state's texts and practices, can you speak to us a little bit about um, the politics of who is imagined as a Muslim? Thank you so much. I think it's uh, it's great that you are able to link it to what's happening in, in contemporary Pakistan and especially the kind of um, the, the, the particular incident that you referred to. And I would like to remind you of, um, of a statement which was issued by Pakistan's prime minister very recently where he tried to link the, the rise of, uh, of rape incidents in Pakistan with his notion of uh, vulgarity. And he sort of argued as if uh, cases of sexual assault are on, on, on the increase because of lack of, let's say, moral values and that uh, that it reminds it reminded him of the need of uh, of Islamic value system or parda as he as he called it. So there is um, uh, obviously I mean um, in in the Pakistani context this obsession where this claim to making to, to, with, with this kind of sovereign claim making um, of a certain kind of a virtuous moral Muslim, but it's always erected on the bodies of, of women. Where women become, the bodies of women become sites of, um, of, of certain kinds of uh, national projects, right? So whether it's that of uh, a virtuous um, woman as a, imagined as a mother, as a sister, as a daughter, 
or is um, or any other kind of project right so i think it's it's important that we we realize that would be discussing is not simply some kind of an abstract theory it also relates to the everyday experiences everyday lives of uh, of of people who who live in in pakistan and i think that's again uh, as you have pointed out the case of of amadis in pakistan is uh, is an excellent kind of uh, example of, uh, of of these practices of these ideas and the and you know since you've linking it with a certain kind of a of a praxis of reading and of uh, the politics of of that reading in which in this particular case i would i can argue that it makes ahmadis legible right so there is as i've argued in my book as well uh, to some extent that the illegibility of ahmadis as a distinct entity and the fact that they have similarity in terms of their beliefs outward practices rituals even names appearances dress code food whatever so it creates this kind of a concern or anxiety among the the sunni clerics or um, you know right wing radical groups that this similarity is facing sort of the distinction between what the state projects as the normative ideal of of islam and belief a set of beliefs and practices um and the need to distinguish it um by othering the ahmadis basically that the ahmadi has to become the other of that sunni dominated normative order uh, the, the problem with this uh, this practice of making ahmadis eligible is that the, the this othering does not stop with ahmadis now once this has been the practice has been established and the recognition of uh, the sunni normative order has been in place then it extends to other groups as well uh, most importantly shias right so that's the natural kind of uh, a trajectory which we have seen happening in case of pakistan that uh, the the first anti ahmadiyya violence starts in 1953 Uh, the ahmadis are declared as constitutionally declared as non muslims in 1974 and then within 10 years uh, similar demands are made against shias as well that they should also be declared as uh, uh, as non muslim so um, but coming back to the point of uh, of of how this is part of um, of of a reading practice whereby um, you know to enable this process of um, of othering of 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 recognizing ahmadis as the other of sunni islam it it required reading you know classical juristic texts in a manner that could be translated into um uh, uh, the legal language of modern day nation state what we can see happening is basically an attempt to to sort of uh, disengage classical juristic texts from their immediate kind of uh, uh, epistemic order uh, as um, as while halak also points it out in his book the impossible state and at the same time to translate and translation as a, as a as a as a as a conceptual term and to translate them into a language of law which can be then implemented within the, the institutions of modern nation state right and 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 this is where you know the there are certain gaps that come up uh where the 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 epistemic sort of uh, paraphernalia if you want to put it this way 
of classical Muslim jurisprudence is um, is set in a different time. It's set in a different context, and it cannot become. It cannot be implemented. It cannot be imported into a modern state structure, which is built on different kind of epistemic ideas or is underpinned by different kind of uh, conceptual uh, categories. So these. um you know the, 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 these um, um uh, disparities you know they they and you know they they lead to further division they lead to they engender more kind of uh, different kinds of political violence uh, discrimination and, uh, and and marginalization right so i think there is um, there, there there's a pressing need to to understand uh, the you know reading as as a practice uh, in various forms and uh, as to how it can be linked with the process of uh, law making of of making claims to the state of uh, of of reforming the society of uh, of all different sorts of activities but dr kasmi you refer to like the classical jurisprudence texts and how they are sort of um yanked from the time and place in which they were sort of birthed and translated into a modern legislative context do you think like the classical jurisprudence canon that you're referring to is thought of as like the ideal muslim archive by the state um or how would you think about that um classical archive yeah i think that's a, that's a very good question and i i would say that when it comes to if we broadly conceive it uh, you refer to as um, as an archive or if we use it as some kind of a discursive tradition so it is about this contestation and and at least this is my understanding because i mostly work on 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 uh, reformist um, debates in in modern islam and link it with uh, the discussions which are happening between ulama and the state so i think i i see it at least as uh, this discursive tradition um, as becoming a, a, as a point of uh, contestation between the ulama and the state that they both want to draw upon it and make claims to an authoritative set of practices which they think can be used to for for different ends from the status perspective it, it this discursive tradition can be appropriated and used for uh, a reformist kind of an ideal which can also be useful for the citizenship making process for the nation building process for the for the expansion of state power in the post colonial context right from the ulama's perspective it enables them to to make claims based on their idea of uh, authoritative um, scholars of um, of islam um to hold on to that tradition and and use it to to reformulate society and build it in a in a in the mirror image of what they see as the the, the ideal canons of uh, or the ideals of uh, of of islam right so the, the the process whereby that tradition or that archive is you know um, the the claim making process and the ends for which it's being claimed and the nature of that contestation it all it's contingent basically and it involves multiple players not uh, you know it's not uh, limited to um a, a few players in that in that sense right so i hope this answers your question yes that that's um that's really insightful and it also makes me wonder like uh, if you if you can give us like maybe some specific examples about how the ulama might use it or how the state might use it for citizenship or making projects yes Oh, yes thank you for asking this question because i was uh, recently i mean i've been working on and i'm always intrigued by this question and i'm sure you will also 
have similar experiences on the issue of sighting of new moon. Yes. So whenever there is Eid, Ramadan, uh, starting now, so there's always a controversy as to whether the new moon has been sighted and whether we should be using science or technology to predetermine a calendar which can be and based on the movement of uh, the new moon, which can be known to the last fraction, basically. Um, so as far as the ulama are concerned, the idea is that since there is an authentic hadith which says that the new moon has to be seen with the help of the naked eye. So it is very clear that it cannot be based on, it cannot be predetermined or it cannot be based on any kind of scientific data. Whereas the the state would insist that, you know, um, um, it, it, it is possible to make use of technology. But it's not necessarily a clash between faith and reason. It's not as simple as a dichotomy between scientific rationality and the irrationality of belief, so to speak. It is, uh, it, it, it comes down to the question of authority, right? And for, because if you read this debate, as I've been writing a chapter on this, the Pakistani state in the 1950s and 1960s, when this issue was, uh, was taken up, routinely referred to the precedent which existed in case of authoritarian regimes, just like Egypt, Turkey, United Arab Emirates. And they said that no one in those countries uh, can dare challenge the standard set by the state. We need to follow that, right? So they follow science, they follow a rational method, but it's the but the rationality of it's not the concern, but the fact that it is um, it helps establish state power over religion and to the the power of the state to use religion in its reformist mode for state-making or for citizenship-making purposes, right? On the other hand, the ulama themselves are not being um, honest to their tradition in that sense, uh, because if you read the debates, the earlier texts which were produced, the correspondence between the ulama and the state, the ulama themselves recognized that there is no possibility, there is no reason, there is no requirement for celebrating Eid as a national festival. There is no need for unanimity in celebration of Eid because as Mufti Muhammad Shafi, the top Deobandi cleric wrote, that Eid is not a festival. Eid is a form of worship. And there is no there is no commandment as such that all Muslims living under even the same, uh, under the same ruler must be celebrating it together, right? But they, they changed their position because of this enchantment of state power, because they recognize that that if this, you know, if if, um, uh, if the if the festival has to be celebrated and if there has to be a committee, then it can only function if it carries the legitimacy, it carries the sanction given by the ulama, because only ulama can lead such a committee. So there is a process whereby they they revisit their own position. They go against the classical canon themselves to create scope for their authority, right? So in that sense, to use Qasim Zaman's words, they, they become custodians of change. And in this process of change, they make sure that they remain in charge, that they are the ones who decide as to what the, the classical canon is and how it is to be reinterpreted for whatever purposes. Thank you. That was a very compelling example and very pertinent too because uh, these discussions are, are especially um, 
current because of the Ramadan moon sightings. So thank you for bringing that up. Um, and so far, we've thought about and talked through authority in the re- in the realm of classical jurisprudence texts. Uh, but I was wondering if if we could think about authority uh, in regards to other kinds of textual archives as well. And can you help us think a little bit about how we can think about coercive textual politics um, outside of the realm of um, classical of the classical canon? Yes, I think in in, in that regard, there is. Um... There's a lot of new, exciting work which is coming out, which is looking at the everydayness of um, practices of how people go about their lives, while at the same time they are in pursuance of various kinds of uh, economic interests, political interests, uh, the ideas of fun, uh, and so on and so forth. But in, in all of this, they are compelled by this kind of, of an idea of, as Navida Khan's book puts it, you know, the idea of Muslim becoming, that this pursuance of trying to be, to approximate the ideal of, uh, of, of you know, uh, of good practice, of following the sunnah, you know, so that is there, you know, but it does not, but the problem is that it should not become a conceptual category which exhausts the possibility of being Muslim. Right, so that it narrows down, down the, the Muslim subjectivity, reduces it to religion as a category alone, and fails to you know account for for other for other factors. But um, when it comes to so, and, and th- that is why it's it's important to to take stock of uh, just generally speaking as to what people are reading in, um, in in Pakistan, let's say. And one could say that a good sort of, um, you know, uh, way of looking at it is to, to, to look at um, the publications which come out of Urdu Bazaar. You visit any of the, the book fairs, which um, international book fairs, which take place in Lahore, Karachi and other major cities. And it, it's, it's very clear that there is an appetite, that there is, um, there's a huge print market out there. Uh, books are being published in large numbers. And, and there are all sorts of books. There is a huge demand for uh, reading material in Urdu for children's text um, um, stories, bedtime stories. There is a huge market for people like uh, Umara Ahmed, who's a very famous um, novelist. He writes about, you know, um, in a certain kind of a reformist streak. And there is... Um, a great deal of interest in historical fiction, the popularity of, you must be aware of, Turkish dramas, for instance, in Pakistan, at Tugrul, uh, most importantly, as to... So, I mean, there is uh, there's a lot of consumption of, uh, of historical fiction, of pulp fiction, of, um, uh, of romances, of, um, of all sorts of, uh, you know, material which is, uh, which is coming out. Um, so, so while I, I, I believe that it's, uh, it's, it's important to that it, it serves as a very important sort of yardstick um, whereby we can understand as to, to what people are, are generally reading. But it, it should not be, it should not, uh, you know, blind us from, from recognizing the, 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 the multiple forms of uh, everyday activities, uh, the economic, religious, uh, political, social uh, interests which people uh, pursue in their everyday lives and which do not necessarily have to be framed within the category of, of religion as such. 
Absolutely. I think that's something that we need to be mindful of. And um, just responding qu- very quickly to your um, comment about the space of the bazaar as a space where we can investigate all of these multiplicities. Um, I had a chance to like prepare a small research project on the uh, Urdu bazaar in Kar- when I was in Karachi. And and I found it very interesting to think about like the physical space of the bazaar and like while real while quote unquote religious um publishers do take like a significant space um in the space of the bazaar it is also like populated by other kinds of um books and texts um and yeah, it is absolutely very, yeah absolutely yeah yeah um i think that it's also important to think about um how we think about what is being read um and we often think of reading uh, like in the form of a book or increasingly a digital screen but um just thinking in terms of art and architecture we could also see the built environment as equally open to being read whether there is actual writing on a building or because the building itself um is a type of text a signifier of sorts um doing some political work to signify meaning um can you help us think about the different materialities in south asia that could count as text um inviting muslim readership Yes yeah i think that's an excellent question again i thank you for asking me this question and i think uh, for for the pakistani context and people who want to have um, some introduction into as to how the idea of bazaar as you were referring to as well so so saima zaidi's book uh, mazar bazaar is 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 a fantastic uh, compilation lots of uh, material all sorts of textual uh, visual material that uh, a number of contributors have uh, have provided and they they, they you know that they give you an insight into as to how people are imagining you know it's um it, it popular imagination in forms of truck art poetry and uh, as well as ideological state narratives as well uh, for example images printed on currency note for instance and stuff so there is a lot of um, you know symbolic repertoire which we interact there's a semiotic feel out there which we interact consume um, and contest on 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 daily basis but there is the you know this practice of of reading the landscape as a form of text basically right so there is there is this conceptual language which enables us to to read it um the the materiality of of the built environment and the way people interact with it and how it has an impact on their on their daily lives now so for instance i mean it's um in in, in uh, the the various kinds of imaginations which we can bring into this kind of uh, of reading i can give you one example and since i was part of this project with my students where we were walking in the city right so we used to organize walks in the in the old quarter of of lahore in the old city of um, of of lahore and in in one particular walk that we organized and it's um, part of the project which we curated was to look at the places which were related to a significant part of the life stories and politics of uh, two characters two very uh, at the polar end of uh, of of radical politics uh, bhagat singh and ilamdeen and both the, the interesting part of the story was that both bhagat singh and ilamdeen they were operating almost in at the same time you know 1928 29 is when they carry out their particular 
acts of violence they get and they were both based in lahore their politics was activities was based in lahore they were almost of the same age so they carried out their activities almost at the same time they were tried in the same city they were punished almost like uh, a year within a gap of a year or two and so we you know it requires a degree of imagination to think of these spaces and bring them together and as part of a narrative about lahore's radical pasts right so there is a polarized kind of a, of a politics which is part of the city's history but you need to look at the spaces where this is happening so in case of both bhagat singh and ilandeen they are operating like all these similarities which i pointed out but bulk of their activities also being carried out in the the same square mile of the of the old city so there is this um, mochi darwaza um uh, you know ground where ilandeen so there is so he was born in um, uh, near shahalmi he listened to a speech which was taking place in mochi darwaza he purchased a knife from a nearby market he goes to anarkali bazaar where rajpal the publisher was sitting and he stabs him to death right and then so similarly in case of of bhagat singh he was radicalized as he went to bradley hall listened to lectures i was fairly close to bradley hall just outside of it almost where he shot sonders dead and then he ran away. and so the, and this is the setting of of the scene which is happening and it they all the both of them then they are tried in in the lahore high court where they are uh, sentenced but they were punished in different uh, places so so in, in what i'm trying to say is that um, at times there has to be this kind of creative imagination um to 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 read that built environment to read those um, material traces of the past because they have shaped the the outcome or uh, the political outcome uh, not just in lahore but in 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 the wider in the wider region the both these acts they had uh, they had significance much beyond lahore they had significance at the the wider regional level in terms of uh, the politics of, uh, of of south asia right so but this is one practice i think where where you can connect with the material past with the built environment uh, but it requires a certain degree of of imagination um yeah you used the word imagination um in reference to like thinking about like spatial histories and using spatial histories as as a way to be in conversation with um these radical figures from the past um methodologically speaking uh, do you think that this has done something different for you um as opposed to the other tool tools you have to investigate history i think uh, for for me as well as my students and it's um it 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 became uh, this this opened up a new window basically um that whereby through the tools of digital humanities you can um, you can have a more intimate kind of 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 knowledge of uh, how these events they unfolded right it it helped establish a connection with with these spatial imaginations as you pointed out and as to to how the erasure of this or the amnesia about these um, uh, about these memories uh, can be overcome using these methodological tools right so i would say that it's more about the the importance of digital humanities the importance of that visual archive and to bring it into conversation with various kinds of uh, theoretical insights 
um, which is then useful not just for the researcher or the academic or not just in terms of the material which one can use in the classroom, but for the general audience as well, because they would also be, uh, they, they, when you can include them in, 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 in this larger kind of an endeavor to talk about, to talk about the city and to talk about uh, the city's radical past, so to speak. Right. So th- there is a methodological gain to be made, conceptual gain to be made, and the larger gain of uh, reaching out to the wider public. Uh, I know that LAMS has a digital humanities initiative where they have like a website where people can go and check out these projects. Um, can you speak to us a little bit about like that website and what that initiative is about? Yes, that that's... Um, uh, it, it's called archive.lums. Um, so we have a website up and running. So this was an idea conceived by my colleague, Dr. Ali Raza and myself. And initially we thought that as researchers, you know, we um, we collect our, our material for our research. So in, in case of Pakistan, as you would know, and other researchers who have worked in Pakistan, that uh, getting access to public libraries or official archives is very difficult. They are not very organized. And I uh, am always reminded by a statement, a uh, reminder of a statement which was made by Dr. Aisha Jalal. Uh, we were having a conversation once and she said, that you have to create your own archive. And I have, you know, uh, the, uh, the, the, her words have, have guided me uh, in my quest since then. So we all end up creating our own archive for our project. Um, so in, in my case, when I was working on the, the Ahmadi book, I was lucky to find some uh, unexplored material, which is which had just been dumped in one corner of the, the civil secretariat in Punjab. Uh, in Lahore. Similarly, Ali Raza has collected, you know, and uh, Anusha Malik, our colleague, they've collected tons of material, pamphlets, handbills, posters. We use this material and we uh, publish our books, um, but then we may not, it's it's not always possible to exhaust that, uh, you know, research material. So we, we thought that it still is very, very useful. It's, um, um, it's still not available to the larger public. So let's, you know, uh, bring it together and, and put it online. So that was the, the initial idea. And we were very lucky to, to have acquired uh, a huge uh, collection donated to us by um, Professor Ishtiaq Ahmed, who had worked on Punjab's history on the partition of 1947. Um, so over a period of almost 20 years, he had conducted interviews of about 500 survivors uh, on both sides of the border, and some of whom he met in, in UK, in Singapore, in America, in other parts. It was a huge audio archive. So so we cleaned it up, prepared a metadata for uh, for these interviews. Uh, and so now it has become a major source for anyone who wants to work on um, on, on partition violence. Right. So so this was the, the purpose. And then obviously the course which I was teaching on Lahore and the walking tour. So we used the material which we collected and it was all most of this work was carried out by our students and by our um, you know local historian Fezan Abbas whereby we have uh, curated a history of different aspects of Lahore's history, whether it's the political history of Lahore, whether it's, um, you know, a cultural history of Lahore, whether there's a project on, on imagining Lahore as a Hindu city, where again, to to connect with those elements of the built structure, which are still there, uh, but people have largely forgotten about it, but that they remind us of uh, the deep connection which the city had and the emotional attachment with the Hindus and, and the Sikhs had with the city of Lahore and how it enriched 
the the social and the cultural life of of the city right so this is um, this was our a uh, main theme the main idea that we create this kind of an archive which becomes available to researchers for their uh, for their research and at the same time to curate certain uh, thematic um, projects which can um, which can combine this kind of archival rigor uh, but still able to put it across in um, in in the form of a narrative which is more uh, accessible just for me personally um, that website has served as a model for how i want to think about research and just it, it has helped me just um, imagine what research could look like so it has been very helpful for me um Well, thank you so much we are so very happy to know that um and and as we wrap up this podcast and as we speak of history um i also want to ask you like a last question about um as as a historian what what excites you the most about um reading muslims this project that we're doing and how you might explain um this project to both specialists in your field and as well as to like a larger audience uh, who might stumble across this podcast and wonder uh, why we're doing this podcast together yeah just do you have any yes. thoughts about that yes definitely i i would say that the for, for me personally the um my, my location my the, my positionality i think it's very important for me that i'm i'm situ- i'm a scholar of i'm a historian of south asia based in lahore and i try to engage with and other, my other colleagues we try to engage with our post colonial context basically that it's it's not some kind of an abstract idea of uh, of of knowledge it has some some connection some real connection and it has some serious consequences as well right so so we were recently at the receiving end of uh, some of these actions and so which which tells you that um, it, it is important that one's scholarship is 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 connected with a certain kind of politics as well and in in our context i think we we feel very lucky that we operate uh, and that that our passion for for research is it, it aligns with our certain political sort of uh, ideals as well um and 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 that in in my case at least you know or some of my other colleagues we can say that the the aligns with the idea of uh, politics of decoloniality of um, decolonizing the university looking at you know the vernaculars and so so all these different kinds of exciting new themes which have come up and exciting new reading practices uh, which have come up it gives us a chance to engage with students to read those texts together basically right and and they they and they range the, the range of these texts then is is immense uh, that so we have the possibility of uh, of 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 reading uh, for instance meer amans bagh o bahar or if i am doing a course right now on poetic performances uh, looking at the punjabi yonra of war or we do a course on punjabi revolutionary poetry we bring in to our conversation ideas of um, of negritude as a way of uh, establishing you kind know, of parallels connections inspirations um and and other decolonial thinkers and critical theory you know so so i mean this is in, in that sense um, we try to become while we are rooted in or try to engage with our larger you know vernacular tradition we try to remain part of uh, of a of a of a broader kind of a dialogue a south south dialogue which can which can lead to certain forms of newer forms of imaginations decolonial thinking 
uh, within our immediate sort of uh, postcolonial context. So that for me is um, personally a very very exciting part of, uh, of of my of my job and of the the, the project uh, that you have referred to because I think it falls within the the category that you have defined and which you are uh, exploring in your project as well. Absolutely. I think that's that's a very inspiring note to end on. Dr. Kasmi, once again, thank you so much for taking out the time to speak with us today. Um, and uh, thank you for everybody who's listening, who tuned in. Thank you so much, Aisha. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you for this thank conversation. You. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.